Welcome to episode 21 of They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we would talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you are tuned in to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio, and I'm here today with Brandon Kelly to discuss one of my all-time favorite films and all-time favorite sci-fi films, Arrival, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Brandon, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, I'm going to read an intro and you you tell me how good how good this is, okay? Okay. Brandon Kelly is a director and one half of the underwater videography team as above, so below. They were born in New Jersey, spent a lot of time in Richmond, Virginia. What? what? Currently lives in New York City. They've worked on feature films like Unstoppable and to date have written and directed two dramatic short films, Night in 2014 and The Real Thing in 2017. The Real Thing stars Michael Torpy, who you might recognize from Orange is New Black or Law and Order, and Sophie Giannamore, from who's now been in Transparent and is going on to tons and tons of cool things. The film is a dramatic short about a father returning from active duty to find his daughter has transitioned. It has nine laurels, including winning uh, Virginia Film Festival's Programmer's Choice Award and the LA Outfest Audience Award for Best Narrative Short in 2017. Woo. Wow. Did you raise your done a lot. You've done a lot. <laughs> How, what was it like uh, when you found out? Were you at the LA Outfest of Festival when you found out that you won? So I was there for the, uh, the premiere and the screening, which was an unbelievable experience. Um, we were opening for a documentary, which at first, in my naivete, I didn't think was going to be the best uh, position for us. But I'd also never been at a niche festival like Outfest, and the audience mm-hmm. was kind of tailor suited for our film. So mm-hmm. people were clapping and whooping and all sorts of reactions I had not expected. Um, so That's the so premiere cool. itself was unbelievable. But then I had to go back to New York and go back to work. But I woke up that Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember, um, to an email saying I should come to the awards ceremony if I'm still in town. I said, no, unfortunately, I'm not. And they asked me if I could get into town. And I was like, well, I'm in New York, so no. Um, And about that time, I kind of understood what it meant. And uh, so they said, all right, we'll make sure you tune in to to the news. Um, or to the updates rather, and that's when we uh, that's when we found out that we had won. Oh, I bet you're kicking yourself for going back home. I was a little bit for sure. Yeah, I really wish <laughs> I had been there. It's my, yeah. minor, minor regret. Congrats. No, I I I saw it on either at one of the festivals, and I just thought it was so so amazing. So, Brandon, why did you choose Arrival? So Arrival to me, uh, as soon as I saw it, it instantly had a profound effect on me. And it took me a while to really digest that and figure out what it was, the long list of things that really spoke to me and affected me so profoundly. Um, I'll say in one sentence, I think Arrival is one of the first films I saw that used science fiction as a vehicle rather than a structure or outline. Um, and what it seems to be, what it seems to me is that Arrival is absolutely not a science fiction story, rather it's another story a larger more intimate story and yet not that complex however it's wrapped in a science fiction genre which is so nice and at the time the way i described it is that it's one of the first sci-fi films that took itself very seriously by which i meant and still mean that it had a cast of unbelievably talented 
um, actors, not just people who are known for their action or for their sci-fi or anything like that. They're known for these deep dramatic stories. And that was really what Arrival is at its heart, is a deep dramatic story. It just puts itself in an exceptional um, scenario. Yeah, that just happened. What happens now? They arrive. They need to see me. Dr. Bank? Are you insane? Now that's a proper introduction. More objects have landed around the world. This is one of 12. I'm never gonna be able to speak their words. Got two days. Figure something out. Wow, that's perfect. Like, we're done now. <laughs> Go see Arrival, everyone. Um, that That's exactly right, and I didn't think about that much until I was listening to an interview with Amy Adams where she said she was so honored to be the main front runner throughout casting when she found out they weren't taking meetings with anyone else and she said I was honored because the script is so good and the film speaks to my humanity but it also speaks to my intelligence mm -hmm. which is something I think is very true in that it, in fact the fact that it takes itself seriously is that it's trying to convey deeper themes than um, like alien equal bad and White House blow up you know right, exactly. there's more to it um, so for those of you who haven't seen Arrival today's show is going to include a bunch of spoilers but don't get mad. Studies show that a little bit of light spoilage actually increases your enjoyment factor while watching. However, I would say the main spoiler of this film is pretty darn good. So if you want to go watch it, it's on Amazon right now. You can turn off the radio or stop listening to this podcast and come back. Find it on Mixcloud. Um, otherwise, I really recommend you continue listening. So, Arrival. Directed by French-Canadian Denis Villeneuve in 2016 for four, count them, four different production companies. Arrival is an arresting sci-fi tale that bends time, adapted into a screenplay by Eric Heisserer, based on the novella The Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang, which won the Nebula Award in the year 2000. It's a story of motherhood, loss, and acceptance set against the drama of humanity's first contact with another race. We follow linguist Dr. Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, alongside physicist Dr. Ian Donnelly, played by Jeremy Renner. I just realized that's really similar to the doctor name from... Um, Jurassic Park, Dr. Mm. Ian Malcolm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, as they butt heads with the U.S. military, the CIA, Forrest Whitaker, and Michael Stuhlbarg, Dr. Banks attempts to learn and decode the language of these mysterious heptabod creatures to understand why they have come to Earth before humanity can seal a more violent fate. And there's so much more to that. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about casting because, you know, Denise said casting the movie was really easy for him because he was already imagining Amy Adams and that he said the I knew the audience would believe in the movie if she believed in it because everything's happening through her eyes, but also all the other casting choices I love. So talk to me about, you know, what were your thoughts on casting in this movie and then what were your experiences like casting Knight and the real thing? Yeah. Um, so I think, like I touched on earlier, the casting of this film is really one of the things that separated itself from prior science fiction films in my eyes, um, both when I saw it and now again today when I saw it again, um, which I think is probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. But uh, for me, the choice to go with serious dramatic actors in a film that is presented as a science fiction, and you know, you think about the, uh, the classic elevator pitch or the one-liner or something like that, from those elevator pitches and one-liners, whoever's listening is going to know that this is a science fiction film. So getting past that is very difficult. And I think one of the best ways that Denis could possibly have done it is to say, by the way, we're going after 
Amy Adams, Forrest Whitaker, Jeremy Renner, uh, Michael Stuhlgaard. They're, they're top notch. You know, they are premium actors. They have all done a variety of different genres and different roles. They've hit emotions um, all along the spectrum. So as soon as you hear those names, it changes in your mind how you're thinking about the film because suddenly you're now thinking about these um, incredible performances that they've given in the past and that they're likely to give again. So casting was massively important for this film and I think they absolutely nailed it. And the great thing is that when you get a truly good actor and there are, there are great actors who give great performances and that's what they're remembered for. But I think also in my preference personally is actors who give a variety of performances that are truly felt so Amy Adams, for example, has been in a wild bunch of different things. She's been in major comedies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But here she gives a very subtle uh, performance as pulled from by Denny. And I think it's it stands out so much in my mind because, yeah, it's probably not going to be what she's remembered for, but she's so perfectly cast in this film. And the same goes for Forrest Whitaker, who's played much bigger. You know, he played Idi Amin, but... Now in this, he has, you know, a supporting role and it's a very subdued performance, you know, by design, but it's so perfect for the film. And I I liked the idea that Denis was able to put together a cast that so complemented each other in working together for the film and not for themselves. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker. I love his accent. Is it supposed to be Baltimore? I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I'm sure he did a little (laughs) bit of research and chose one. Actors really do love putting their own spin on it and finding their own character like that. Um, and whenever it doesn't take away from the film, it's always better, I feel like, to indulge. Um, because, like I said, as long as it doesn't take away from the film, it builds on them and their confidence in their performance. He he really does compliment them. I think his performance is so underrated because he, he represents essentially the entire military for the audience, yeah. right? Except, you know, for the CIA. He's the entirety of the U.S. military response trying to be objective right? And his face, he has this kind of like stone face where his lips go kind of sideways, where he's facing aliens like this is a threat that's been practiced for. Almost. Yeah. And I found it funny. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, keep going. I, this is how we go. I found <laughs> it really interesting, the the triangle of military representation you have. Is it stool bard or stool guard? I don't know. Let's, uh, either way, I love him. I loved yeah. him in um, Boardwalk Empire. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And he's I liked so him good. in uh, Trumbo. Oh, Yes. Yeah, you want to talk about an actor with different with range, right? Exactly. Stuhlbarg, Stuhlbage. Wait, so is it is it B? Uh, Michael it's a Stuhlbarg. B. It's Stuhlbarg? A B. Okay. Oh, and a serious man. Oh my gosh. Right, right. Oh, geez, yeah, of course. Um, so, so the the kind of uh, triangle of military representation in this film, you've got Michael Stuhlbarg representing the CIA, Forrest Whitaker representing the head, you know, the decision makers of the military, and then you've got that young actor who plays the young captain who represents more of the yes. grunts. Yes. And yes. so I found it interesting that Whitaker's character wasn't more in line with the young captain, whereas uh, Michael Stuhlgaard's, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, <laughs> his character, the CIA, was more in line with the grunt, the Rush Limbaugh listening, um, yeah. you know, uh, quick to react, fearful. I love the guy who's like, I think we need a shot across the bow. Like, yeah. I love that so much. Oh, my God. And, and he sounded like Rush. It was, you know, it was... You got it got my blood boiling, and you know it's not even. Yeah, it's not even it's not real. real. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I, anyways, sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, I find myself thinking about it too. So there's a fourth military representation, which is Zima portraying General Shang. Oh right. The and I didn't realize this until I watched an interview with the with the screenwriter Eric, and he said, you know, the whole time you're watching this movie, he's kind of like this flat representation of the inter 
intercontinental conflicts, right? And that he's the military character. But once you meet him at the end of the film, he's he's this like polite, really wonderful gentleman. And it's actually because of him that everything gets resolved, right? Right. So like he's trying to break all of these critical, you know, I guess cliches. Speaking to that directly, what you just said, you don't actually know anything about him except as it's viewed through the eyes of the American Mm -hmm. military. And Mm -hmm. so you what we see as the first you know 90 minutes or whatever of him is actually not him at all it's literally an interpretation of him and so you think about mm-hmm. that and the american military is interpreting him through the lens of what they how they view china which to be fair i'm sure that him and his actions and his communication in reality in the world of the film is also interpreted through his culture and and the chinese um approach to things which i was actually thinking about when um when he was on the phone in that surveillance footage from the satellite. And I was just thought to myself, knowing, having seen this film before, knowing how it ends and, you know, he, he even says like, oh, my superiors can't change my mind. You know, it, he, he clearly is a strong individual and he is, I, I like to think he is kind of what we would hope for in uh, a world leader because he is open to other possibilities. And even though it took some crazy time manipulation to convince him, the fact that he's open, like he's not completely closed off. It's not his pride getting hurt and that sort of right. thing. Um, so okay. yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, the relationship, to, I guess we should take that as a, a walk towards language, right? Which is one of the central themes of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what, it, what was your big takeaway on, on how Denise's film language to talk about language? Well, so for me, I really, I really appreciate that Denise you know, everything about this film he took very seriously. And the fact that he took the study of linguistics as seriously as he did and made it such a central part of the film, whether or not it was in the short film, he, I mean, in the short story, he carried that into this, you know, massive multi-million dollar feature film. Um, And having the lead character be uh, a linguist um, was a great decision by the original author. Um, I think, I think Denis' approach to language in the film was fascinating especially starting from the scene where they're in louise's office and he she says look realistically i'm gonna have to be there in in order to even start to explain or understand this language and understandably um forrest whitaker's character is like no you're just trying to get in you're just trying to see them and that makes sense that is a very natural very reasonable assumption to make and so you know i as a parting word she says make sure you don't get the wrong guy this next guy you know, he has the wrong interpretation for this word war, which is, you know, it speaks directly to Forrest Whitaker's character and experience and exactly what his fears are with the aliens. And so then when the, he gets the uh, translation wrong and Louise gets it right and the translation being a desire for more goats or more cows, which to be honest, I'm not, obviously I'm not sure whether or not that's the correct translation, but I thought that was a fascinating, very basic uh, way to show all levels of audience, like linguists, or, uh, linguistics and language are going to be incredibly important going forward in this film. And just like the kangaroo uh, scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly important to be able to tell a mainstream audience who might not be or not might not want to think as hard about this film that, you know, there's an easy way to understand and convince and persuade people um, when you're talking about linguistics of the importance of getting it right the first time. That the choice of the Sanskrit word asking him the meaning of war and the other guy saying it's an argument and she says yeah it's a desire for more cows 
that so perfectly encapsulates a lot of the themes of the movie too, which is, you know, understanding and language and communication. This is from one of the stories or one of the essays I, I read or was that communication is limited by your perspective and understanding requires a, a sense of perspective uh, that, you know, there's a lot of times in the movie where people are misinterpreting what the intention of the heptapods are. Right. That's right, always exactly. trying to remind them that that's not the intention. So it's so refreshing. I don't think I've ever seen a movie involving aliens where the central theme of the film is conflict resolution. <laughs> yeah. No. And I mean, that that example of, of the Sanskrit word, one word for war comes up precisely later. And it's a little on the nose, but I think it works perfectly when they say weapon and they're using the yes. word they have for weapon. And yet they don't mean weapon in the sense that, of course, the military automatically thinks. I think uh, language and the impact on your brain is super interesting. But first, I want to remind everyone, you're tuned in to WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I am Cameron Kitt. I'm here with filmmaker, director, Brandon Kelly. And we are talking about the film Arrival, which was released in 2016. I want to go into the the hard sci-fi stuff that gets my blood going, which is the uh, time travel and time movement. But (laughs) But I want to save that a little bit and go back to something else, which we were talking about casting. One big thing about casting is, is working with children. And both of your films that you've directed children are more or less the main characters um what's it like directing kids um honestly everyone's always warned about directing kids and for good reason uh it really does take a certain temperament i believe and you know this isn't me trying to inflate my own balloon i'm just i it takes a certain ability to put yourself on their level as far as being able to communicate and just like any actor you want to give them the stakes and the motivation the same applies to children. You just have to communicate it in a different way. Um, so I, I guess growing up, I babysat a lot and, uh, you know, worked at camps and stuff like that. And so being able to communicate with, with kids and um, help them kind of see why it's important to either follow directions or to do any sort of little task, it just, I don't know whether it came naturally or if it was, it was a learned thing, but now it's just instinctive. Um, so I really enjoy working with kids. And I also think that it's a great way to communicate um, to adults when you have a film that focuses on a child. Because mm-hmm. when you have a film that focuses on an adult, oftentimes the, the adult audience can't help but compare themselves, compare the situation, but they never compare themselves to children. They only see children as others and as from a third-party perspective. So it's a much easier way to get them not to be thinking about things you don't want them, not to be comparing themselves to the main character. You want them to observe that character and you want them to learn the lesson through another as opposed to trying to interpret it through their own lives, which sometimes it won't work. Sometimes you'll have an adult character whose life is so different from theirs, they won't be able to understand the message on a deeper level. Whereas if you have a child and you teach it that way, they'll be looking at it as a child. They'll be seeing the character not as themselves. And so they'll be able to more easily digest the message. I had not thought about it that way. That's really cool. You know, it's like creating a, a more open pathway to talk about the story. Exactly. It takes away, it takes away like subconscious uh, obstacles that people build in themselves when they're watching a film. Huh. That's really fascinating. So for Arrival, Denis and the whole squad, they spent the first two weeks shooting all of the scenes with Amy Adams and her daughter, uh, Hannah. 
um, all the different Hannahs. I think there's four different actors who play different variations of Hannah. And they, and he said it was like starting with the soul of the film first. And so everybody had that emotional kind of basis to build from, which you can pull on from throughout the movie. And they kept coming back to pictures of the daughter, which are cut in and out. Um, I loved the casting. I mean, of using the different girls at different ages. Um, but like, what was it like casting Sophie? Um, For or, the real thing? Yeah. Like, how? when did you know? Well, so... You know, like anyone who's written anything you have in your head, even if it's not a specific actor. And I, I've never had a specific actor in my head when I was writing. Um, maybe I will someday. I don't know. But for me, I had definitely a, an image in my head that I worked with when I was visualizing. Um, and I knew, I knew two things. One, I knew I wanted a trans actress to play the part. And two, um, for the purpose of communicating to people who aren't as open to the message, I wanted ideally an actress who passed. Um, and this mm. is a little bit controversial in the community, but it was very important to me that there not be, like I was talking about subconscious obstacles. When you have an audience member who's not already open to the idea and it's someone who you're trying to introduce a concept, uh, to whom you're trying to introduce a concept, any obstacle you can take away uh, to help them see the message more clearly is that much more important. So for mm. me, as you know, as controversial as it sounds, it was very important for me that I have a passing young trans actress um, because I wanted that, you know, I'm not going to name a geographic location, but I wanted that person who doesn't have trans friends, doesn't know anybody who's trans and hasn't heard any story like this. I wanted them to be able to connect automatically with the actress and not think of her as trans. And we had plenty of people who saw the film and assumed that she was a cis actress and they would comment on that. And it was you know, it was nice to be able to say, actually, she is trans. And just the look on their face, not even a realization just of, oh, wow, I need to rethink what I was thinking. Initially, it's resistance. Initially, they're like, oh, well, clearly I was wrong because if she's trans, then the good feelings I had must have been a lie, you know, that kind of thing. But then inevitably, they think, well, no, that, you know, my reaction was my reaction. It was a true reaction. Mm -hmm. It was based on my first instinct. I mean, first instincts as I saw the film for the first time. And then that opens the door to them thinking, well, hold on now. Now they relate these good feelings they had to this young trans actress. And they realize that, you know, that scene where the father says her real name, that the emotions they had in that moment were just as valid. And they're valid because she is actually trans. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think for me, equally important to having a trans actress you know, not unfortunately, I, I don't, I don't regret at all the fact that I made the decision, I think was the right one. I think having a passing trans actress for this film, because it was not, it's not a film meant only for the community. It's not a film meant only for trans kids. It's a film meant for everyone uh, to be able to introduce them to a young trans child and to help yeah. everyone rally behind the idea of protecting trans children. Um, so for casting, I knew I wanted those two things. And the process was difficult. I had no idea really how to start. So I actually reached out to Sarah McBride with the Human Rights Campaign, who at the time was the National Press Secretary, and now she's running for Delaware State State Representative, I think. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, it was one of those things where you put this person on such a pedestal, and you're like, how in the world am I going to contact them? And I actually just found her phone number and for, for the National, um, for Human Rights Campaign. So I called and she picked up. And I scheduled a time. We had a conversation, this long conversation about asking how I should approach casting this. What organizations should I talk to? 
And at the end, she actually said, oh, also, there's this young girl who was in the last season of Transparent. You should check out her episode. And when I watched the episode with Sophie, I was like, oh, okay, so that's her. That's the girl. (laughs) And it was just such an immediate thing. It was so nice to be able to find her in in my first search and the first person I looked at. Um, So we had, I I had my casting director reach out uh, with a list of things we were hoping Sophie would be good with doing. It's essentially like a, a wants list. Uh, and there was a big miscommunication. One of the things I asked for was an interview. Um, and I forget the phrasing I used, but f- what I wanted was an interview for her to talk about why it's important for the character to be trans, for her to play the character as a trans mm-hmm. actress, that. What the family thought was that I wanted to tell her story, tell the story of Sophie and b- her being trans and stuff like that. And so uh... they thought I was trying to do some sort of 60 Minutes thing. Um, and so initially we had this huge pushback and almost sunk the entire negotiations until I finally got them on the phone and was able to understand where the communication broke down and explain to them what was actually going on. And we wound up, I I offered, I was like, look, I don't need the interview. That's the lead. I really just want Sophie to play the part. And they, when they understood, they're like, no, no, that interview sounds important, blah, blah, blah. Um, but even to get, even get access to Sophie, she did not have an agent at the time. And so... The only connection we had was Transparent. So my casting director went to the producers of Transparent, who then asked for all the materials to do with the real thing. So I sent them the script and the storyboards and everything I had, all the interviews I had done, everything. And they looked that over and then approved the film to be given to Sophie as as a possibility, because at the time they were screening all of her work. Um, So it was really nice to have that kind of, uh, that okay from the producers of Transparent. Um, And so... Yeah. And so after the phone call, I told them I'd like to come out. They um, they were based in the Midwest. And so I told them I'd come out to the Midwest and spend some time with the family to get to know them, make sure it's a project they want to be involved in. And also for me to work with Sophie to make sure that we would have a good relation, a uh, good working relationship. So I went out there for uh, a weekend and we worked together. I went over and worked with Sophie and we did all sorts of, you know, fun acting games, but also some more serious scene work. Uh, and the real thing doesn't have a lot of dialogue. And at the time, I'm not sure it even had any dialogue um, when I was first casting. So it was really more important for me to see how she reacted emotionally to scenes and if she could easily portray a variety of emotions. Um, and it went phenomenal. She's an incredibly gifted actress and has been since I met her. Uh, and it just so happened that that weekend, we hadn't had anyone reach out about the film. And that weekend, we had five different actors to met for that role. Um, but at the end of the weekend, Sophie gave the go ahead and she said she did want to be a part of it. So I, I had my Sophie. I mean, I had my Allie. Yeah. Allie, Allie as a character. Now for those listening who might not be hip and up to date, Brandon, could you just explain really briefly what the concept of passing means? Sure. So, uh, in the trans community, one of the goals of many transgender people is to what's called pass. And it means to be able to be seen and heard as the gender you identify. Um, so for example, if you're a male or female and you're out in the world and you go to a restaurant, it, the idea is that anybody who's looking at you, talking to you, the waiter, the bar staff, anything like that, uh, automatically thinks of you and assumes that you are female. And so that's what passing means. And there's yeah. different levels of passing and different, you know, everyone has their own version of passing and what they want and desire. But when I was referencing it personally in the casting process, it was in order to have an audience member who has never met a trans person assume that the actress playing portraying the character is cisgender female. And the importance of that is that they have all their natural experiences and what 
unfortunately is for them a comfortable environment. Um, and then at the end, I can reveal to them, actually, the actress is transgender. Um, so all those feelings you had are just as valid and they are valid um, still uh, with, the, with the actress being transgender. And that was my goal is, is so that if, you know, if they were to see someone that they think of as transgender, unfortunately for a lot of these people, that would automatically shut them down to the message of the film from the get-go. So that's why I needed, or I, I wanted, and yes, needed a character who was passing, um, uh, an actress who was passing to play the lead role. I mean, I think it makes complete sense when you're trying to use your film to help shape belief, right? That's a, one of the best ways to use film, to use the power of storytelling is to help people connect with it. There was a big study done on Republicans that they're much more likely to um, change their mind about gay rights when they finally know somebody in their life who it's so true isn't yeah who identifies as a, as not uh, heterosexual exactly I mean and if you didn't have that opening scene right that opening scene that we see is Sophie as Allie being really cute walking down the hallway and then stopping awkwardly as she goes to use the bathroom because of the teacher staring at her right so that feeling is like instantly if, if i didn't have that scene i would just be like oh this is like just a cute girl hanging out at school right like right. she's just and being... it's funny that scene uh well so three things about scene one it was not written nor originally edited to be in the beginning uh really? and you can tell that by number two there's a huge continuity error in the um in the opening scene she has her hair clip already in her hair oh and then it's like there's a whole you know what i didn't even think about it yeah. there's like a whole thing and about her putting them up and in, in, i was in really them. reluctant to put that scene in the beginning for that exact reason and people kept reassuring me no one will notice and that was a great learning opportunity for me as a, as a filmmaker to be like wow you know what if you're focusing if you're if your film's strong enough to focus on the right things such as the little girl and the situation they won't notice a hair clip in the hair and no one really has i don't think anybody's ever pointed it out yeah. Um, and then the third thing is that, unfortunately, that scenario is very real. And there are plenty yes. of very famous um, instances, both court cases and famous young trans uh, activists who have decried the, you know, the treatment that they receive in their school, which, I mean, we could get into it. I don't really want to. But, <laughs> you know, the safety of school is supposed to be sacrosanct. It's supposed to be, I mean, not sacrosanct. It's supposed to be sanctified. It's supposed to be yeah. something that is, you know, an absolute that children are safe in school and beyond physical safety or rather other than physical safety, they also should have mental safety. And of course there's bullying and it's very hard to get rid of it. You know, everyone's always working on it, but it's another level when you're transgender because you have these teachers and these administrators who are against you who aren't always malicious about it. Sometimes it's a legal quandary they're in uh, a legal quagmire that they're in, but um, th these situations happen every day where, you know, a little girl's not allowed to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And safety. Trust me that it, it doesn't become truly painful to you until you have a friend tell you about the getting yelled at and having to leave the bathroom or I guess even experiencing it, right? That, that this kind of like personal activity, me personally, I have to pee about 25 times a day to imagine having that be a concern for my own safety is hard to imagine, which is why I'm actually, I agree with everybody. I'm glad you put that at the beginning of the film because it creates tension that we follow throughout. Just like Arrival creates this emotional arc and connection to their character really quickly. Now, do you find that you have to give different cues or do you have to treat your your child actors differently than your, your adult actors when you're working Absolutely. with them? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's been my experience. I know that, and I've read, uh, you know, I've read directors talking about working with children who kind of act just like adults. And there's that too. 
um, personally, I don't like the idea of a child's entire childhood being in uh, the film industry. Um, mm. When I was young, I acted and there was an opportunity. There's like a very distinct point in my life where I could have pursued trying to be a child actor. I'm not saying I would have been successful, but trying to go down that route. And when I look back, all of the experiences I had as a kid were all because of the fact I did not choose that other direction. And so, you know, I'm not saying that it's the wrong choice to make at all. I'm saying that my preference is for actors who don't have um, the adult mindset, who are kids. And therefore, yeah, you have to talk to them differently. You have to give them, you, you have to basically use different language to deliver their motivation and the stakes of the scene. And, you know, sometimes it comes very easily. Sometimes you're in a scene and you're like, oh, well, that boy over there is annoying. And, you know, that girl over there is really nice to you, but you're afraid to talk to her because this, that, the other thing. And it's just mm -hmm. like, sometimes it just becomes very simple. Um, other times when you're trying to communicate a complex idea, you have to step back and realize that the child probably wouldn't have any idea about the complexity of the situation. And so you break it down to something that becomes a very black and white, straightforward objective, as opposed to the more, um, more complex idea that is the entire scene. And therefore, their performance is more realistic because they act like a kid would in that situation. Uh, that's and smart. so you build it, you shoot it, you do the sound design, you have all the other actors, everything else other than the child's performance, you know, um, communicates the complexity and the uh, depth of the scene. But the child's performance, you know, not floats, but um, it basically it exists in the scene as a very realistic uh, element, a very realistic performance, how a child would act in that exact scenario. So I really appreciate um, when a child actor is able to both understand the complexity of a scene and also be able to perform in a very realistic childlike way. Uh, yeah. And I've been blessed that, you know, I, Sophie really understood um, most of what we were talking about, especially having lived most of it. Mm -hmm. um, and she was able to even contribute some things as well because, you know, she had some experiences that I had heard about but hadn't put in the film, that kind of thing. Um, and then with Knight, um, yeah. How old was Jonathan O'Reilly when? So funny story. The the I don't know which Knight you saw, but there are four chapters to it. I saw the and, one that's all of them together. Yes. On so that in that one, the fourth chapter was actually shot a year prior. Um, oh. And most people, again, just like the hair clip, don't notice. Um, and if you look for it, you're like, wow, oh yeah, no, he definitely looks way younger. But um, the original night was just that fourth part. And then the other three parts were shot a year after. Um, and so I think originally, I'm not quite sure actually how old he was. I want to say, you know, I don't want to guess. I, I don't remember how old he was. He was very young. He was younger than Sophie was. Um, and he was pursuing acting. He's done some good parts. I, I know he was in Gotham and a few other things. Um, but uh, he was great because he was very young and at that age, when a kid has a, an interest in acting, it's not so much that, like, the difference between him at that age and Sophie at the age where we work together for the real thing uh, is that Jonathan didn't understand the complexities of the story. And so, therefore, communicating to him in a much more simplistic, uh, objective-driven way was exactly how I was able to get the performance that I did. And his performances were fantastic. I really enjoyed... Um, what I was able to get with him. Um, hmm. You know, it was, it was really easy to work with. He was really easy to work with once you understood exactly how to communicate with him as 
most actors are, to be honest, of any age. Once you understand how it's best to communicate with every particular actor, then you can pull the best performance from each of them. Um, and, and make so, an emotional connection with them in order to get them to make an emotional connection with the camera. And with yeah, you. well, sometimes sometimes it is that. Sometimes it's exactly that, a, an emotional connection. Other times, and this is something you find later on, I feel like, when you're working with either more established actors or more experienced actors, they don't always have that emotional connection with you. For, for a lot of them, it's kind of a job. You know, they're there a day and they're gone the next day type of thing. But if you're able, especially with those type of actors, if you're able to get them at all excited in the piece or their part especially, then it becomes uh, much easier to work with them because what you want is for them, you want them to have an investment one way or another. And if it's not an emotional investment in the story, then you want them excited about the character. And if you can't get them excited about the character, you want them excited about the scene and the actions. You, you have to break it down to a point where they're excited about something. Because if you don't have an actor who's eager to perform in the role that they have, then you're not going to get a good performance. Mm-hmm. And you can tell. Yeah. And, you know, everyone, not everyone, but sometimes, I mean, the worst case scenario, everyone can tell. But at minimum, when you're watching back your dailies or whatever, you can, you can tell. And you might not be able to tell, but you're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt speaking with director Brandon Kelly about the 2016 film Arrival. And I want to get back into that. Um, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Color palette, adapting from a short story, which is what you also did with Night, sound design. Um, Brandon, what do you think is, is most interesting to you? Mm. Well, I would say uh, I could talk a little bit about the cinematography. Please. Um, that was Bradford Young, who yeah. I don't know if he, he was at one point New York based and I had heard his name around. Um, and it was so cool because he was, is so young and to have him shoot uh, that film it just shows what an unbelievable talent he is um yes and to pair him with denny villeneuve who's just one of my favorite directors alive right now uh it was a match made in heaven and so the color palette they chose was you know a lot a lot more colorless you don't have a lot of your uh warm colors it's pretty bleak and cold um Mm -hmm. yeah the skin tones are a little colder (laughs) Um, which I think fits well with, you know, the idea of a subtle science fiction film uh, and subtlety in general, in general, to be honest. The only time you really see orange is those hazmat suits, excuse me, mm, excuse me, the hazmat suits and when they're leading that soldier away from the tent who have some sort of breakdown. But, um, but yeah, I think the cinematography was astounding. At, at points they use a bit more traditional, big budget, um, large depth of field images, but then especially for the, uh, the flash forwards, honestly, um, with the little girl, Bradford Young chose a much more shallow depth of field, wide open, I'd imagine, um, you know, faster lenses so that you have a lot of play with the in and out of focus. Um, and I've noticed it, especially when uh, Luis first realizes after the flash forward with General Chang, uh, General Chang, she realizes what she has to do and she... Um, walks away and it was clearly very difficult for the puller to, to follow her the whole way but thankfully he went into infinity at some point in the, in the entire world of focus opened up but then immediately after that the next shot is jeremy renner walks from out of focus into focus and you know those types of shots are they oftentimes call attention to themselves if they're not placed properly so if you have too much of you know a, a character coming into focus 
it's saying so much about one thing, but usually it's saying that the character's coming into understanding and in that moment, mm-hmm. they, they weren't. It was just well-placed. And I really like when when shots are used against their grain, against the stereotype for whatever that shot is. So if you have a character walking into focus, usually it's them coming into understanding. But I like it so much more when it's not necessarily that. I'm not saying it you know, can't be used that way, but... It just works so well, right? Like, oh, Bradford Young, I didn't know this, but it makes so much sense. When I looked him up, he's a DP for Selma and for Solo. So he has this range where he can do super serious and super sci-fi. And that's really kind of the the merging of what happened in Arrival. And he said, it's interesting in all the shots that are in the human world where, you know, we're talking with people, it's always dark. But as soon as we're with the aliens, it's extremely bright, right? Like, that's that's a a good point. I thought that was really fascinating. But that's... Yeah, you, go ahead. When you said solo, do you mean the Star Wars film? Yeah. He was oh, a DP. I didn't know that. He does just such amazing work with it. And Denis, the way I heard him described by some other folks I was listening to on a podcast is like, he's like the point guard of directors. He's always making everyone else look good. I don't really know what that means. I think it has something to do with basketball. Um, yeah, it that... is. That's a very, very good description. And that's certainly what I, maybe one of the reasons I love him. And I think I love him through his work. And I haven't actually read enough about his on-set presence and how he works. I really, what I'm obsessed with is behind the scenes making of documentaries and I have not seen one of those that focuses on Denis. But that, I think that is definitely the calling card of a, of a well-experienced director. You have too many directors who ascribe to this idea of everybody's working for them. And it's so much more healthy and important and I think good for the film when you surround yourself with such an incredibly strong team that it's effortless for all of them to look amazing. And you, you have to willingly pull each aspect of the film out. That's the sign of a good film. If you mm-hmm. love the film and then can reach in and pull out each individual aspect to talk about it, as opposed to you seeing a film and being like, well, that was beautifully shot. You're like, if, if, the, if your first instinct is the fact that a film was beautifully shot, in there my was opinion. no substance. Yeah. yeah, well, it's not necessarily no substance, but it, it was certainly outweighed by the cinematography. And I absolutely understand and believe that cinematography can call attention to itself. I don't, I don't believe in the idea that it always has to be subtle, always has to be under the radar. Um, but I think that a film should be loved and enjoyed in its totality before someone then thinks to pick out one or one thing or another. The exception to this being, of course, if you're a DP and you're watching Blade Runner 2049 and you're like, wow, I was obviously really paying attention to the cinematography by DP. Right. It was incredible. So there's exceptions to the rule, of course. But I, I think for me, I, I strive for my films to be complete in the idea that the reaction is for the totality of the film before somebody realizes that, you know, Greta Zazula's cinematography was gorgeous or um, Jules Gimbroni had an unbelievable score or that Michael Mizrahi made a a college classroom into a middle school classroom like right you know the, the team should be able to stand out when in when looked at individually but i think as a whole we should all work together for the film to be enjoyed in its entirety like everybody's making the same movie and when that's happening it's obvious like you but the truth is you can do both you can have arrestingly beautiful cinematography that is good and beautiful in that it's still serving the story Right. Serving is the perfect word to say it. Everything should serve the greater film. And so the performances that I'm playing from actors serve the greater story, mm-hmm. the, the film in its entirety. The story itself, the script, should, the dialogue should serve the end product, the, the film. Cinematography, production design, sound, everything. Everything should be serving what becomes this singularity at the end where everything has been put into it. And it's this 
it is uh, some of its parts as opposed to any one thing. Yeah. The, what you were mentioning about focus, the very first flash forward in time that Dr. Banks has is really brief. It's right after her, one of her first, I think it's the second interaction with the heptapods and it's a childhood memory of being near a horse. And it's so out of focus that the horse's head looks kind of alien. Oh and my God. I, I thought the exact same thing when I was watching today. That shot's so good. I mean, yeah. it, I mean, that's one of the best places to use focus. Now I want to wrap up today's episode by talking about the sound design because oh, okay. oh it's just oh amazing so they want yeah. they were oscar they they won oscar award for best sound editing in 2017 and and the bafta for best sound so the reason it's so good is because denis had known the head of the sound design department sylvain belmar belmar in montreal they'd been working together for a while and something that i thought was super interesting that he did and I didn't know this until recently. He had the composer also start scoring before they ever start filming, which mm. is the almost exact opposite way that people do it. So he said, you know, I wanted to have that. Like, I don't want to think about music as like a, two weeks before the film premieres. So they would be playing those like very eerie tracks on set. And I thought that was really fascinating. But I mean, what 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 stands out to you about the sound work music design? Well, it's funny you, you tell that story. I actually just saw something recently where someone did on a major, major motion picture. They did the same thing. They weeks before they even started filming, before there was any footage, and maybe even before there was a script, they sent them like a one liner just to give them a feeling. And almost the entire score was based on that. Um, so I found that fascinating. I think the sound design, like everything else, so complements the film. And mm -hmm. yet when you pull it away is astounding yeah. um you have all these real world sounds all this diegetic sound of people walking through tents picking up mm -hmm. objects pens and whatever writing and typing on computer that is built in you know seamlessly into the world of the film and then you have these hints and touches of music at certain points that crescendo at certain emotional moments but not always the traditional emotional moments, you know, I, one that stands out to me is the first time they're going down the tunnel into the alien area. Mm -hmm. um, there's a shot that pans up. What it's actually doing is panning up across the ceiling and it's actually, it turns into a tilt down, upside down. Yeah. And this, the crescendo, it's the first real big vroom, like mm -hmm. uh, crescendo. And it's used as a reveal for what essentially is a white screen, you yeah. know, in, in the audience's mind at that point, it's essentially a white screen. So the reveal of that, and it's almost like, you know, they've purposefully, just like when they uh, were doing the news stories, they waited so long before they even showed a small TV in the background with a shot of the ship. You know, they didn't show yeah. it for the first 20 minutes or however yeah. long. Same thing with uh, the scene where they're going up. They wait so long to show the room itself that the reveal is this big emotional moment. And it's one of those things that sound can do where there isn't necessarily an emotional moment, sound can absolutely deliver or create the emotional moment. Because we're Many... following it through her eyes as we're experiencing it, right? So it's like she's finally realizing this is really happening, right? That's right, the exactly. room. And that's, and that's why that emotional, emo, emotional moment should exist there. But if you take away the sound, it wouldn't be that the audience yeah. would not have that emotional reaction. So for her, simply looking up, you know, it would be like, without sound, it'd be like, oh, cool. That's, you know, that's the room they're going to. That's what it looks like. Great. But with the sound, then you are suddenly put in her place. And it does become this magnificent, life-changing head, head tilt, essentially. She's just literally looking up. 
Yeah. Oh, that moment when he throws the the glow stick and it stays up is oh, like, yeah, ugh, it's mm, it's it's crispy. Oh because, my god, you talk about science fiction. That's incredible. It's it's just so satisfying, right? I think I'm always searching for something that bends reality a little bit. And I mean, there's a lot of things that had to work in concert to make the heptapods work. I I really appreciate that they weren't humanoid and they had a completely different language and everything about them so fascinating. But thinking about how they designed the sounds that they make, Denis asked that you know for for arrival i want these aliens the word that he kept using was sacred to have this sacred nature and so i think that that made a lot of sense watching it again the the seem the things that they seem to pick it almost sounded like a cow when i first watched it right it's like Mm. these honks were coming in when you see the ship but it turns out that the sound crew actually hiked in new zealand for three days to get a rare bird sound and then then turn that all the way down and would mix it with the gurgling noises that camels make well i know i was like what (laughs) That's I mean the the sound the sound is so far I am not even yet versed in talking to composers so that's you know I'm very confident in many things but talking to a composer still gives me the willies. Well, okay, let's let's actually wrap up then on on symbolism. I know we don't have a lot of time. Or actually, do you want to wrap up on symbolism? Or wrap or you up, get wrap into up time? on anything you want. You know, let's talk about what do you I think is the takeaway? Yeah, time travel. Ugh. Yes. Okay, tell take it away. You have two minutes. Okay, so. <laughs> Shout out to one of my best friends, Alex Forstenhausler, because he and I get into this argument all the time. And I love it. I don't know at this point whether he still loves it. But we have wildly differing theories of time travel. And so without getting into the specifics, for me, anything that touches on the idea of time being either nonlinear or any sort of travel through time, uh, or with this film, especially with it being nonlinear and kind of more fluid, I really loved how they did it. And I I really should read the short story to figure out how exactly he wrote it. Because however, would you say his name is David Hesner? Uh, Yeah, Heiserer. David Heiserer. Um, Whatever he did in the screenplay, and however it was interpreted by Denis Villeneuve, was purely brilliant. That Ah. scene with Shang is the perfect example where Shang is realizing or has realized that the only way possible for what happened 18 months prior when she made that phone call to have possibly happened is if he gives her the, his personal number and tells her the dying words of his wife. And realizing that and understanding a little bit in the world of the film at that point in the scene, how everyone knows her mind works a little differently, he even says, I'm, I don't pretend to know how your mind works, but it's important for me to tell you this. And so he tells her the information she needs to know 16 months, I mean, 18 months prior in order to basically save the world. I mean, stuff like that. It, it was so beautifully written. And obviously, you have the entire Hannah flash forward, flashback situation. Mm-hmm. I remember getting entirely too excited, uh, but I think appropriately reacted um, <laughs> when I figured it out. And I was so excited because my sister loves predicting movies and she happened to be in the theater with me. So I actually scooted over next to her and I asked her, I was like, do you want me to tell you what I think is going to happen? And being her, she's like, yeah. So we talked about it. And then I was just so excited because it was one of those things. It's not even, it's not even a prediction. Like for me, there's a difference between a prediction and a film where it's like, this might happen. Let's see. And knowing like, Hey, the evidence is telling me X, Y, Z. And so with arrival, it, it didn't feel like a prediction. What it felt like was I now understand. I have an understanding of what's yeah. happening, what's going they're on. Leading, they're giving you clues to what's going right. to really happen. But yeah. it's not a red herring thing. It's not like a James Bond clue thing where Mm-mm. there's a, or a Shyamalan thing where there's a big twist. Um, not that I don't appreciate twists, but oh, with twist. this one, the the idea of the twist 
it was, you know, when you watch it again, everything makes perfect sense from like the very beginning. The very first words of the film are, I used to think this is where your story began. Yeah. And that tells you right off the bat, it's like, this is not where your story begins. And <laughs> the first shot is her birth. So her story doesn't begin at her birth, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think it was so beautifully constructed, so beautifully structured. And I really do want to read the screenplay at some point to know what sort of rearrangement they did in order to make it work the way it did in the final film and how it was originally written. Uh, in yeah. the screenplay because the flash forwards and everything else to do with time, you know, the, they have a conversation at one point, Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams on the back of a truck and they're talking about how he says he's still single. And she has this great line about, don't worry, you can still understand communication and still be single. And it's implied or it's not implied, but the audience believes that she is implying that she is now single. She is good at communication, but she is now right. single. But because of what we've been saying, shown, right? At this right, point, exactly. we assume that she's a she's a, a, a mother who's lost her daughter. Right. Uh, yeah, a widower and also, uh, I mean, not a widower, I'm sorry, a, a divorcee or a widower, either way. It doesn't yeah. actually explain it at first. But yeah, so lines like that. And then later, after she's had the first revelation, she says, I now know why my husband, or I finally know yeah, why my husband, know left husband left me. He's like, you and his reaction is like, wait, you were married? <laughs> Yeah. And it's something she didn't know until that moment either. Yeah. Because to her, yes, that happened in the past when you're experiencing it when he left her, which is happening which happens in the future. So it's it's just an absolutely fascinating and it's what movies should be. I mean, a, a movie review I saw of this film is called Arrival, a response to bad movies. Like this is a movie that I've been wanting. I didn't know how much I needed it because it benefits from multiple watches. Me and my family were obsessed with calling it before, but I'll be honest, this is one of the movies where I was stupid. Like I was, I didn't even know, I didn't even fully understand it when I left the first time. And my, my like family had to explain it back to me. Like, no, it starts before. And I was like, Oh, like it goes <laughs> over your head. Like, and it's, and then it was amazing that that happened. Um, but I want to end by, have you read Slaughterhouse five? By... I haven't read it, no. So the aliens in that book, um, they have a very similar approach to time. So their trial fam- their, the quote from the book is, I'm trial, fam- trial famadorian. We see all time as you might see a stretch of the Rocky Mountains. All time is all time. It does not change. It does not lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. You take it by moment, by moment, and you will find that we are all, as I said before, bugs in amber. Which is going way too far into the idea of free will, which we don't have enough time for. But I love this idea of learning a language and allowing yourself to see time as nonlinear. And I thought that was like one of the most beautiful concepts. Um, and I hope we, I mean, honestly, my first thought was like, I wish I could learn that language. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, no, I, it would be pretty amazing. Although it's funny because I like the, and I've often thought about this, you know, knowing everything that's going to happen to yourself. I like the spontaneity and the surprise that comes with life. Um, and, hmm. you know, I think inevitably, just like with Amy Adams, you know, even though she doesn't change the course of her life, which the film doesn't really give you a sense as to whether it would be possible to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, because her, you know, they never give you an alternative to her future, which makes sense because she's not going to change it in the future. So it doesn't matter. But I'm um, uh, sorry, I got off track. What were we just saying? Oh, would you want to learn the language? Right. Um as a fan of learning languages in general, I would love to learn the language from a communication standpoint. Mm-hmm. But I also think it would be interesting to be able to utilize uh, things that you learn later in life in the current time. For example, mm-hmm. zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's the opposite. So zero-sum game, she hears in the past and then utilizes that memory in the future like you normally would. But 
it's because she's experiencing both at the same time that she's able to do it so perfectly in that moment. And Brandon, we got to wrap up there before I, before I give outro credits, where can people find more about you and your work? Um, you can find me on Vimeo, uh, Brandon G Kelly or Brandon Kelly, I think. And, um, YouTube, I've got a few things on YouTube. Um, yeah, I, uh, I just have weird things all over the internet. There's no one place to find me. I do technically have a Facebook page for my directing, but I, it has not yet been really fully implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so just reach out to me. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Wait, berandom.media. Sorry. My website is uh, B-R-A-N-D-O-M as in Mary dot media, B-R-A-N-D-O-M dot media. Uh, and my company is B-R-A-N-D-O-M media. So you can find me on there, find my work on there and reach out if you want. Well, uh, awesome. I will. And Brandon, thank you for geeking out with me over this and for choosing such a good movie. I thank really you so appreciate much. it. Uh, you've been listening to They Came From Outer Space. I've been talking with Brandon Kelly, and we've been talking about the film Arrival. You can find out more about uh, this show by searching Mixcloud and typing They Came From Outer Space. Tune in in two weeks to hear another episode here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. 